Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by writer-director Richard Linklater. Richard has had one of the most unique careers of any director I can think of. Maybe like Sodenbrough and Gus Van Sant are close. He's just one of those guys who can make anything. No matter what he does, it's distinctly and uniquely him, but he can do any genre and pretty much just make whatever he wants. It's incredible. As I say to him, the fact that he's the same guy who made Waking Life and School of Rock is just nuts. And I always remember I met Linklater at a screening of Fast Food Nation. Again, who would read that book and then say, let me turn this into a narrative drama movie? Crazy. Anyway, I met him at the London Film Festival and I said to him, hey, would you mind signing my copy of Slacker? And he was like, no, not at all. And he wrote, to Stephen, an honorary Slacker. And he was like, man, it's really cool you bought the Criterion edition of this. I know it's not cheap, but wow, it's such a good special edition and I love the extras. I really appreciate you spending that extra money on this and I said oh that's cool would you mind if I ask you a couple more questions and he said uh not to be a dick but I've got to get to a press junket in half an hour and they're picking me up down the road and I was like oh okay not to worry he's like but wait do you want to walk and talk with me and so me and him had like a 10 minute discussion walking down to where he was being picked up talking about his movies film advice, films I should watch. And then he got in his car, said goodbye. And afterwards I was like, fuck, this was literally like a scene out of a Linklater movie. I had a total walk and talk with him. What a cool guy. And as you will hear, nothing has changed. Richard is very warm, super interesting, and just uniquely himself. Here's me and Richard Linklater. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How's things with you? Oh, good, good. Are you in Austin? I'm in Austin. Thanks for taking time to talk. Yeah, sure. I wanted to start. Random question. I'm a huge Bogdanovich fan, and I'm really curious why you pick Long Last Love and Nickelodeon out of all his titles for your... (laughs) Well, I think those are the two underappreciated Bogdanovich. You know, it's my theory that Peter never made a bad movie. He just did his thing. And the world around him changed and the attitudes changed toward him, his success and his perceived arrogance and all that. But if you really look at the movies purely, they're just wonderful. You know, they're so sweet and, you know, in love with movies. And I don't know. It's just time to celebrate him. Uh, I mean, it it always has been. But, you know, when he's gone, you, you go back and look at those and you're like, holy crap. You know, they, they were much, I think, two of the more unfairly maligned movies, especially Long Last Love. Um, 
Nickelodeon was just more ignored than hated, <laughs> but Long Last Love was hated. So anyway, I've got a little attitude about it. I want to share it with an audience. No, I'm totally with you on this. I'm always telling people to watch She's Funny That Way. I think that's oh, an incredible screwball comedy. It's wonderful. It's a great double feature with What's Up Doc. You know, yeah. it, if, it has a lot of the same people in it, too. It's just, it's a wonderful film in itself, and it's wonderful within his own filmography. You know, I don't know. He, he's just, uh, no, he's really, really special. And like, I, I just, you know, just a consummate director. When I was in New York before the pandemic, I went to, I don't know if you've ever been to Jerry Ollinger's movie memorabilia store. I haven't. It's great. It's just these film geeks and they've just got an archive of posters and paraphernalia. Oh, I got to get there. But they're really sweet guys. You come in, there's no pressure to buy anything and they'll just say, who are you into? What kind of posters do you want to see? Any favorite directors? Any favorite movies? And I said, yeah, I really want to get some Pete McDonovich posters. And they're like, oh, can't stand that guy. And I was like, well, you guys are fucking idiots. <laughs> and I was like, why don't you love Peter? And they're like, oh, he's such a, he's so full of himself. And yeah, I don't know why they had that attitude. And I was spent my entire time whilst I was looking through the posters, just trying to change their opinion and say, go watch St. Jack. Go watch She's Funny That Way. But I said I really need a poster of Vale Loft. It's like one of my top five favorite movies of all time. And they were like, oh, we don't think we got anything. And I was like, well, it makes sense because it was self-released and it was like his tribute to Dorothy to get that film out there after she passed away because I think everyone, I don't know, I, I guess they thought a romantic comedy with a leading lady who got murdered is just not marketable which is just really horrible and sad but yeah anyway they found the poster and i bought it but i don't think i changed their mind on peter but but the tell is that oh we're not bogged on what does that mean you don't like because they thought he was no because they again it was his character that they thought he was cocky and arrogant but i don't think so i i find i find him personally really charming and super charming the best raconteur and walking encyclopedia of oh yeah film history yeah he's he's all of our like sweet you know he's your gentle film professor who knows everything and yet really cares about your own what your tastes are and what you're into i don't know he yeah that that attitude it just kind of drives me crazy oh i don't like it's like that's such a such a 70s uh, thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, I think he was one of, I think Quentin said it, and I don't know if you've seen that amazing documentary, um, One Day Since Yesterday, Yeah, where he says, I think he was the first director celebrity. Yeah. And so everyone was kind of like, fuck that guy, you know, with his Playboy models and all his success. and. Oh, stuff. yeah, everybody hated that. But he was kind of taking off from... Well, Orson Welles and Hitchcock were celebrities, but in a different way. They, you didn't know that they were having like a fun personal life. He 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 modernized it with, yeah, he's a celebrity director who makes these hit movies, critically acclaimed, all that. But then he's also of his time, you know, he's dating an actor. I don't know. I just think the whole image, they, they just went, oh, screw this guy. And, you know, he's hosting The Tonight Show. Yeah. And, you know, he's a little, yeah. 
but if you really get it from his perspective, he, he's really just wanting to share, <laughs> you know, he's a little like Cole Porter and that the world was kind of a great romantic place. Why wouldn't you appreciate someone's success? He appreciated other, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you, you know, it was just, he, he didn't think bad thoughts about other people. So why would they think bad thoughts about him? I, I don't think he, I think he was strangely naive that way. And what I think is really cool looking back on it is he was so out of kind of raging bulls and easy riders kind of click of like Scorsese, Coppola and De Palma and just making, and all his interests were much more in classic Hollywood. Yeah. But I think being in his own lane and he always says like he barely smoked weed, wasn't really into partying per se. Well, he just unabashedly himself, you know, he wasn't listening to, the music of the day. He was listening to Frank Sinatra and, you know, at the height of, at the height of, you know, different eras when everyone else is going, you know, punk rock or whatever's going on. Yeah. He just, he had his own taste, did his own thing. Yeah. Talk about your own lane, but I, you know, it's a, it's amazingly consistent. He's kind of a West coast Woody Allen in that regard. Yeah. You know, would, would he never been, he wasn't as, cinema loving in that regard you know he's more of kind of a comic you know theater you know writer guy but peter was just pure cinema you know i think saint jack is really criminally ignored as well that's a real yeah that's a great story about middle age well middle-aged male friendship which you don't see that much on screen yeah people love that movie i mean people who we know you know film people i i it seems like everybody I know loves that movie, mm-hmm. but yeah, you get outside of our world, you realize, oh, but that could go for almost, <laughs> that could go for the majority of cinema, what we consider cinema. Yeah. The other thing I read, which is, I was really curious about, Raging Bull was hugely important for you. I usually ask directors what films really sparked something in them, but I read Raging Bull and I was kind of surprised you picked that one as a eureka moment for you. Well, it, it, it was kind of like time and place, you know? Right. I was in college. I was a, you know, sophomore in college, wanting to be some kind of playwright. I didn't know what I was. A, definitely a writer, but that's what just. It was the first one of the early films I saw of like, oh, cinema as some kind of. I mean, it sounds so dumb by today's standards, but like art. Oh, you could express something deep and dark with film. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't. Films were just entertainment. You know, I wasn't taking them that seriously. And I saw that in a in a commercial at the, you know, Christmas release at the mall, you know, that kind of thing. I was like, oh, my God. Wow. My dad said, oh, yeah, that guy must have been he must have been lived there. And we had these neighbors who were Italian, grew up in the Bronx. And they said, that's exactly what it was like. So artistically, I thought that was such a triumph to for people to say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it felt like to live in that area at that time. And. I don't know, the psychology of the character, De Niro's, the performances were so, you know, I don't know, all of it, it just really got me thinking about film. That's all. There, that was followed by just thousands of other films, but that was one that just kind of triggered something in my um, searching young art, artistic brain, like, oh, film, film expressive, maybe, you know, but what can you say? I have a signed Criterion slacker from you from when I bumped into uh like BFI Fast Food Nation premiere. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you wrote to an honorary slacker, which was like the so cool. <laughs> and indeed. When I was watching it back, I remember there was always kind of like, it's a, it's a film about nothing or nothing so much happens, but it's so technically accomplished. Did you know going in it would be that, I know, I was just thinking you've got 20 or so characters all coming through. That's a hell of a lot of people to wrangle. You got so many tracking shots. I was looking back and technically it's so, yeah, so accomplished. I think that probably worked on some subliminal level, why it's the film stood out. You know, a lot of indie films just kind of throw the camera up on sticks and film people talking or whatever. I was like, I had a, I had a really rigorous cinematic design, you know, yeah. for that movie. It wasn't just random, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. It's like, no, I, there was a, a a plan, you know, there was a something I was trying to experiment with, not only narrative storytelling, but just the style of real time and what I don't know. So I, I think you don't see in these no budget films, even the first shot of the movie, one of the first shots in the movie, once he gets out of the cab, you know, there's an elaborate crane shot. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't see that in a lot of twenty thousand mm. dollar films, but. Uh, and it has Steadicam shot and all that. People were, I, I do remember filmmakers coming up to me like, hey, how did you do that? That's crazy. You know, like at the, you know, indie levels, like, well, how did you do that? I said, well, I talked to Steadicam guy to give me half a day, you know, oh, I, we knew there was a crane and, you know, Austin was, there was a lot of generosity toward the film and a lot of my crew members knew people who knew people and we had connections and I don't know, that's just the spirit of how it got made. But yeah, I, I I wanted it to look a certain way, so it had a, it it definitely had a, a design, you know. And how did you feel going from twenty k to, was like six million for dazed? Yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> we confident? Were you nervous? Whoo, you know, at that stage of your life, I think it's incumbent on you to, for your your insecurity and lack of confidence has to be totally overridden by your absolute passion. Right. <laughs> you, you have to, and, and obsession, you have to be nervous because you don't there. I knew I was going to be experiencing a lot of things I hadn't experienced before, just namely taking money from an entity to, to make a movie. What does that mean? Are they going to be watching my dailies? Are they going to be judging me or, you know, what's, what's going to be, what's the relationship going to be like? with the studio, you know, you, my head's full of bad stories and you know, bad things can happen. And so you're a little paranoid and, you know, all the above, but I was so excited just to have that opportunity. You know, I was ready. I'd been thinking about that film for a while. I had all the music. I, I was ready, but I still, even though it was my third movie technically, and I'd made a bunch of shorts, it was, it, it definitely was a, organizational leap but i was so thrilled to have the support system you know on slacker you do everything you go you're your own pa you run around town looking for a prop or a shirt or you're taking actors around it's like you know you're going to the bus station to pick up the film stock you're <laughs> you're you're doing everything so it was like great to have departments it's like oh i don't have to do the wardrobe there i can talk to people and look at it and go yes no yes no should that be you, you like this watch or that one? Oh, I like that one. You know, like, oh, wow. 
And you can be overwhelmed by that. Or you can think of that like, hey, all these people here are trying to help me make the best movie I can, which is pretty exciting. You know, there's a system set up for me to succeed, but it's also a system that will totally swallow you if you if, if you lose a step in it, if you can't swim in it. So it was precarious, but it was thrilling, too. So and that that's the film that makes or breaks you. You know, I, I knew going into that by the time this is over, I'm either I'm either going to prove to myself and maybe the world I can do this or I'm meant to do this or I'm not really cut out for this. You know, so you don't really know, you know, you, you're I think you're as passionate as I was and felt I had a lot of films. I wasn't, you know. You just don't know how you'll respond. It's like, you know, going to the big leagues. Like, I'm, am I ready for, for this? I think I am, but maybe the world has other plans. So it was definitely a 15-round match, you know? Mm-hmm. I was thinking back to when I first saw it. I saw it when I was in college. I was going to movies. I was going to gigs, making short films, going to galleries. And I saw this movie, and I've never been as bummed out as to how boring my teenage years feel compared to <laughs> those two hours. It was, and a lot of people I gave it to you felt like, fuck, our life sucked compared to this. You know, we have no <laughs> muscle cars and keg parties and our friends don't look like Mila Josevich and stuff. And yeah. Has other people said this to you? That it's a nostalgia for something I've never experienced. Yeah. Well, it was my greatest hits kind of all played into one. I mean, I was really trying to capture, believe it or not, at the core of it. It's so funny. You know, I was trying to, the, the inspiration for that movie was teenage boredom. You know, driving around looking for something to do, trying to be cool. You know, that's what, that's what I always thought of that movie, just guys in a car looking for where the action was and not really finding it. But, uh, <laughs> but you can't help but want to be entertaining. You know, it got funnier and it got more... I don't know. I, I just kind of packed it up with with fun incident from all the characters. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I just trying to make it fun. I mean, it was I wanted it to feel real, but I have had people say that they wish they lived back then, which I think is sad. I was like, oh, you know, it was actually pretty crappy time. But um, I think every teenager would do anything to be somewhere where they're not, you know, where they are, <laughs> be, be somewhere other than where they find themselves. I do love the fact that they always say like, oh, this party sucks or yeah. maybe the next year will be better or let's go someplace yeah, else. But it has got that great thing where you don't realize when I look back at college and when I was at film school and stuff, I I'd so, I was so happy and had so much freedom, but you didn't even know at the time that that was such a beautiful time of just hanging out and watching movies. And it, It's like the human mind is conditioned to not appreciate the moment. You know, I mean, there's entire you know, obviously disciplines and religions, you know, reminding you to be in the moment, but it's almost impossible. You know, you're just thinking forward. You're thinking what's next. You're, you're, your mind's elsewhere while you're in the middle of actually having a pretty good time. No matter how oppressive and horrible your circumstances feel, you know, it's the people and the energy. And, you know, it's, it's you know, I've covered this quite a bit. The My little sequel to days years later, I was everybody wants some, I was confronting a different thing about freedom. Like the guys actually did have a ton of freedom. You're away from home. You've got your own place. It was college. The difference between college and high school, high school was all about oppression. And to me, college was about freedom and choices and really making yourself whoever you want to be. 
Was the paddling real? Did that really go on in yes. the hazing rituals? Yeah, that did go on in my in my town. And it, it goes on in a lot of colleges like uh, fraternities. Yeah, it's amazing the 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 pain people want to dish out to each other and then under the guise of some kind of initiation, you know, but I saw it as a metaphor. You know, you're always the new kid getting abused somehow. And you assigned everyone albums, all, all your characters albums. Well, songs, artists, albums. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Who, do, who did you give? Uh, what did you give to Matthew McConaughey? I think he was pretty much metal. You know, I, I you know, guitar guy, Ted Nugent, Leonard Skinner, uh, a little bit of that. He's probably digging the Doobie Brothers. I, I forget exactly, you know, <laughs> but. And- what did you give Ben Affleck? Did you give him anything? He was such a, he was such a douche. I was wondering what he listened yeah. to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I forget what I gave Ben. Probably the same stuff. He'd probably have a dose of country too. You know, sure. I was kind of avoiding. There wasn't a lot of country in the in the music, but I for I'm pretty sure Ben, if it's Texas, is listening to a lot of country. I know you said you didn't like the marketing campaign when it came out and you said it didn't do great at the box office. And you said that I think they kind of led into more a stoner comedy. How did you feel afterwards? Were you that, that whole movie, the marketing of that movie, that was kind of a blur because a weird thing happened. Like I was making a studio film the whole time I was working for universal and then somewhere in post-production, they handed it off to an indie distributor kind of, Thing. So my my studio film, the thing I had gone through the ringer for, you know, suddenly became like an indie film. I'm like, wait, that's not that's not exactly what I signed up for to be treated like a odd little film. I, I thought I was making a film for everybody, you know, anyone who'd ever been through high school. I, mm-hmm. I imagined, you know, again, youth naive you know, like, oh, I want this to be a big hit, you know, like American Graffiti or something, you know, like, why wouldn't this be everyone like this movie? You have to think that way, you know, when you're making a movie. So I guess I was just disappointed to realize they didn't think it was very that commercial. And they were perceiving the movie as a movie with a bunch of actors nobody knows, with no plot, with no good ending. You know, if you really break the movie down, here's all its problems. Here's Mm -hmm. why. It's not going to make any money. You know, they can just do that all day long. Total glass half empty kind of thing where I was saying audiences like you'd have these test screenings and everybody would applaud and be laughing. I said, that's a great response, isn't it? And then the cards would come back in. Nah, they're grading it not as high as we would like. And, you know, they were judging it when asked, you know, what about the ending? How'd you like the ending? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Does What's the ending? You know, it's like, oh, people don't like your ending. You know, so it was all negative. It was all what it wasn't. So it was weird to feel that twist. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's an it, it's a success for its indie distribution. It made, you know, my category for it got taken away. But viewing it as it is, it, it was a success and continues to be. I just, you know, you know what I learned <laughs> to not have big expectations. You know, that, that's really at the end of the day, what I learned is like, oh, I put all my psychic energy toward the production. Like that's the thing I had to learn how to do. What I really found out I had to do was survive distribution. It was to psychically be able to 
deal with a film like that coming out and whatever disappointments or however it's treated by the people who made it, you know, so I don't know. That, that's where I started had to wrap my head around, you know. Yeah, I remember speaking to Joe Swanberg and I asked him what advice you would give young filmmakers. And he said, even if you have success on your first film, you probably won't on your second one. And everything is just going to be completely up and down throughout your entire career. I think he had a great success with his first film and he thought everything after that is going to be an endless, you know, highway of green lights. But he said, just get (laughs) ready for all the speed bumps. You realize there's only a, like nobody, I mean, nobody sees their, a filmmaking career like that. Even the most successful, like if you were to sit and talk with Steven Spielberg, I'm sure it's like, oh, I couldn't get that film made or they didn't, I didn't have, you know, it's it's just frustrating in its nature. You know, probably the perceptions of films and other people, you just can't be doing it for those reasons. But yeah, there's no, I think you're lucky to have any early success at all. Or it's probably, it's somewhat necessary, I think. So I realized my first three films were successful for sure in, in the most important way, culturally and within the industries and stuff, you know, anyway, that, that was actually a good start to some kind of career, even though at the time I wasn't truly satisfied with any of it, you know, (laughs) but again, that's, that's the human condition. Yeah. Where was your head at after dazed? What were you, what were you thinking in terms of your career or where to go next or? Oh, I was just focused on getting my next movie made. The day days we came out, I was casting before sunrise. I'd written that in the spring while I was in post-production on Days. And I just determined like that's the next film I was going to make. I was going to go back, you know, take kind of what I was doing on a bigger scale there and just kind of make it largely between two people. That's what I felt I had to do, you know, make a personal little intimate story about these two people. So that set a tone there. You know, I wasn't waiting around to see how Days did and get hired to do something, you know, looking back. And I had opportunities that fall when Days did come out. And I was trying to get Before Sunrise off the ground. I, I didn't have it financed or anything. I was just trying to find the right two actors and, you know, feeling my way through that process. And I met with every studio in town. Everybody liked Days, you know, my little mm-hmm. perceived disappointment in it wasn't the industry's perception they everybody liked the film everybody wanted to meet me you know i didn't really appreciate that at the time either i went around and had meetings at every studio every little some of the companies they all offered me deals you know the typical studio deal like oh you know it's a three-picture deal and you'll go into development on these things and we'll send you you know and i i went with the uh the, the studio, it was Castle Rock, a company within a studio who just offered me creative freedom and they liked Before Sunrise. They read the script and like, hey, we think that could be good. How much would it cost? Oh, nothing. They're like, yeah, we should do that. I'm like, yeah, I'll do. So looking back, I, I actually turned down. I was so enthusiastic to have the opportunity to make that movie. I turned down probably a million plus dollars that I could have made in some of these other deals to make like a hundred and something thousand making that movie. But I was just glad to have that chance. So I think looking back, like that's that probably set the tone for what 
the rest of my career because I was just, you know, whatever would help me make the film I was hoping to make next. In other words, I wasn't approaching it like a career at all. <laughs> I wasn't thinking long-term career type things. I, I never thought I belonged. I never approached it like a job or a career. I was just excited about the next film I'm trying to make. So that's bad on one hand. It probably cost me a lot. On, on the other hand, that's just, it's just been my life ever since, I guess. Well, that's what I think is so remarkable about your career is just how varied and skillful you can move between genres how different your films are it's almost become your signature trademark in a way and the fact you're the same you're the same guy who made waking life and school of rock is just really incredible well yeah that it's funny you kind of earn your way into that that wasn't at first i felt a little like oh you're the gen x hip guy doing films about young people. So I remember when you get out of that a little bit, there's a little bit, especially in the, in the nineties, it was kind of like, wait a second, you shouldn't be. The first time I felt I really stepped out of my uh, slot I had been assigned was when I did the Newton boys. Um, for me, a bigger film, it was over $20 million, 50 day shoot. You know, I was recreating the teens and twenties true story. It was this, Thing I became obsessed with a fun historical romp. And then I just realized, oh, no one thinks I should be doing films like this. You know, it was, it was a bit of a, whoa, there's something incongruous with me doing a film like this. Oh, the concept of selling out was so intense in the oh, Gen X era. It was like, so dude, intense. fucking hell. I mean, you can read reviews of Before Sunrise. That was my sellout film, even yeah. though it was, it was less than half the budget of days <laughs> that they were just projecting onto it. It's like, ah, when you take a director and put him with a star vehicle, they thought Ethan Hawke was a star, yeah. you know, like people were just projecting such uh, kind of crazy things in that area of selling out. So that was our generation, which is, I wish there was more of that today just for the artist's sake. It's good to have that on your shoulder saying, you know, it, it, it was definitely, but I never considered, making something like the Newton boys. That was a story we had found my friends and I, and, you know, I really wanted to make a movie about that and got obsessed with the, the same reason you make any movie. It would just, it just costs more because of its, its own nature. It was a bigger movie, but I remember being kind of like, okay, you know, it's around the same time. Remember the Coen brothers did Hudsucker proxy around that same yeah. time. They got the same thing. Like, what are you guys doing this bigger movie with Paul Newman and, you know, like go back to your indie, whatever we think you are. Yeah, it was it was so real. And, you know, the, the goal back then was I was living that dream, you know, to have a film at Sundance and then make your, you know, get people to pay for your next films. But not really. I guess there wasn't the sellout channel there is today where you, you get hired to do you go right into superhero world and things like that. Sequels. If you think about it, it's a pretty entitled position to be picking between your indie or your studio, you know, big label, little label. Mm -hmm. That's a really privileged position to be in. But the scrutiny was intense for sure. But yeah, no, different, different time, different, different culture. You know, I'm, I, I was lucky to, to I'm forever lucky that chronologically I, I caught the era I did. 
it would be very different today. I don't know what I'd be doing getting started. Do people approach you and say, as a filmmaker starting today, what would your advice be? I know you've just said patience and hard work is kind of your mantra. Yeah, hard work. On one hand, nothing's changed. But I mean, I don't know if it's those same stepping stones are there. Like you make your indie hit and then you got your you get a chance, you know, a studio or give you more money. Now I think it's like you make an indie hit and you could maybe pitch your, your next thing is a series. You know, can you, where do you fit in the industry? No one really wants to fund your next movie because they don't want to fund movies anyway. <laughs> so I think your best hope is to get it into a T, you know, some kind of, series arrangement which you know i hate you know as an option i I love movies so yeah i guess it's a it's just a struggle it always has been it's it's more pronounced now but on the other hand it's it's kind of the best time to make a film you know i have some friends i have a lot of like young intern people in their 20s that are i'm always in touch with through the austin film society I have two friends who scraped together $30,000 and they're making their film. They're starting this week. So two guys I know. So I'm like, you know, between GoFundMe and some parents money, just old school, scrape together the 30 yeah. grand, make your film. And I'm like, well, some things have never changed. You know, I was doing that over 30 years ago. So that's good. I don't, you know, maybe you get into Sundance. If the film's weird, maybe you become a midnight there. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a hustle. Yeah, I think you can kind of make. I always say I think you can kind of make anything, but getting eyes on it with the amount of content and platforms and noise that's out there—that's the real struggle. Well, cultural impact is really different. You know, it's just it's hard to break through with films into the. I think things are so um, kind of. The, the trend of box office and materialism and success has been so steady all these years that we've gotten to a place where if it's not a sensation in money terms, it's like, why would anyone pay attention to it? I don't think you don't get to join the cultural conversation if your film makes, you know, a million bucks or, you know, there's just no there's less mainstream curiosity I think in the culture for weird indie stuff mm-hmm. where there used to be, you know, it was like everyone had a diet, you know, a cultural diet that included, Oh, some indie films here and some indie music. And then, you know, and now it's just, it's just all here. There's less room. I feel like in people's cultural palettes, but I don't know. I, I could be wrong. It just, it feels like that. I just don't, you know, I'm probably not the best judge, but I don't feel there's the cultural excitement for for indie films. They're not part of the, the a bigger conversation that I was lucky to be a part of, even with my little not that high grossing films. You, you might be on a magazine, on actors and on magazine cover. You're getting you know, you, you see the films referenced in cultural language. And, you know, people are talking about just the buzz. There was just more cultural buzz for films back then of, a, of an indie film. Now it's it, there's still that buzz. It's strictly for huge ass you know it's for the films that are that are obvious you know 
yeah, I think movies have just left the center of the yeah culture and discussion. I know, which is heartbreaking for guys like us. It's crazy. Even even when people come around and be like, "You've got Blu-rays," and I'm like, "Fuck yes, I've got Blu-rays." You know, these pe- these films aren't on streaming. Yeah, I love audio commentaries. I love bonus features. And when they get wiped off streaming, I'm always worried they're going to get caught up in some weird studio archive somewhere and not seen yeah. as a viable film to release and stuff. Even like Steve Buscemi's Trays Lounge, I've got a DVD of that, and that's not on any platform anywhere and i've no idea where it's yeah this idea though you can stream everything it's just that's bullshit so much great stuff is not available that's a crime that if if trees lounge isn't available for say a young person who's loving finding out about indie cinema for the first time they should be able to watch trees lounge like that yeah but they can't because it's not somebody you know that film was owned by a company that probably got bought by a company and went bankrupt. The people who own it might not even know they own the film. Yeah. My DVD release is weirdly by Pioneer, a consumer electronics brand. So I'm wondering that those yeah. guys dip their toe into DVD world for like a few films. <laughs> well, they or did something. for like 18 months and yeah. then they changed the business plan and they, they flushed that. Yeah. It's hard to think of what we consider such a big part of our lives, you know, the art of our lives. And you realize it's just, it's a commodity for somebody. And I've had films fall into bankruptcies and not know who owned it. And, you know, it's just, that's the, the deal you make in the indie world is you're just not sure of your long-term, uh, you know, pattern, your long-term health. It could yeah. be precarious, but I always chose to make the film, you know, even when I knew that future success was kind of uh, iffy, you know, I didn't know, like when you're making a bigger studio, it's like, well, it's going to come out and they're going to release, you know, you've got a lot of muscle behind the film. But I've entered into a lot of films with the future of that fairly uncertain, just knowing, well, I'll get to get the film made. And my deal is if I make the best film imaginable, maybe it'll have a shot. Maybe it'll get seen. But, you know, you you control that not very well, you know. I was thinking for Boyhood, did you manage to get the full 12-year budget up front? Or did you have to? I got an agreement, but it came in year by year. Wow. You know, little little 200000 every year <laughs> to shoot on film. And it never went up, even with inflation or, you know, union, low-budget union rates or, you know, the cost of making yeah. film and paying people. Everybody's rates went up, but I never got, <laughs> they never gave me more money. <laughs> so by the end, we were really scrounging, you know. I was putting in my own money and stuff, but uh, it was, yeah, no, I mean, what a blessing that someone would ever say yes to that project. Such a weird ask. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that pitch meeting must have. I suppose you have the seven up series to reference and stuff, but. I don't think I referenced that because what I was asking was pretty different. It wasn't, 
shoot every seven years. It was like, no, every year. I'm right. Gonna yeah, true. And it's a narrative. I can't even tell you, but here's the, here's what's going to happen. And I have movies, I have Patricia and Ethan and, you know, it was a, it was a weird ask, but you know, it was a logical ask too, in a strange way. I was asking a guy who had already done two films with me, Waking Life and Tape, you know, two indie films, but he liked them both. He knew I was, you know, and what I was telling him, just asking the big question, hey, 12 years from now, I think it'll be a good film. And that he agreed. If, if we get lucky and it all works. And every year, Jonathan Searing at IFC had to jump through some hoops when he had to answer like, what's this 200,000 you're spending every year? When are we going to see it? What is this? The, the heat went up over the years. <laughs> he says every year. He's... And when they started, this is how the indie world changed. When we started, they were producing a lot of movies. So it was just one more film on their production slate. They might produce 20 films that year or 15. Halfway through, we were their only film in production. They had quit producing films and they were just acquiring films. Mm -hmm. Why spend a million making a film or a couple million when you can just buy a film for 200,000 from these people who got the money on their own and made their film and, you know, be selective. So the business model changed. We were their only film in production <laughs> for like the last five years of it. Did you ever have any concerns down the line? Like what if Ethan gets booked on a huge TV series or the lead actor falls out of love with his project and kind of finds it strange as he's growing up and doesn't want to be involved or that something might happen along the way to derail this epic undertaking? There was practical considerations. Like it was always Ethan and Patricia's schedules. Mm -hmm. You know, this was always going to be everyone's side project, no money side project. So with that, you know, Patricia was on a show the first time from the second year on, she was on medium for like the next seven years. So we were always working around her schedule. Ethan was always busy. He was in a film or a play. You know, the worst is a play when they're, when they're working <laughs> six days a week in New York. It's like, oh, my God, how do you get out for a day? You know, you leave at in the last performances at eight o'clock. You know, it's like, oh, my God, it's so tough. So we were always scheduling around that. The bigger question you ask, like, oh, would uh, if someone just fell out of love with the project and didn't want to do it the next year? I never really thought of that. I thought it would be so fun and people would look forward to it every year. It would just be a fun thing to be doing. And that's that's what the case ended up being. You know, the only one who got a little wobbly was uh, my daughter, Lorelai. Somewhere in her awkward teen years, she was kind of got a little tired of it. Not never like she threatened to quit. She just suggested we kill off her character or something. <laughs> it was very systematic. You know, every year I just started thinking about the next year. Uh, we'd wrap and I'd tell them, OK, next year you you're going to fall in love. You know, I would just tell them what's happening. And then I'd have a year to really kind of think about it and work with the actors or talk about it. And then we'd shoot for three days. So no, I mean, it was so abstract. The first, let's say six, six years, seven years, the end was so far away. It's like, I would think about it in first grade. You're not thinking about high school graduation. That's a right. lot. That's, it's, yeah. it's abstraction to, but you hit junior high and you're kind of thinking like, well, yeah, I know some older people like, at some point you could see the end around the corner and then 
the last couple of years, it was a strange, really unique momentum build, you know, and every year got better. Just like, you know, you hope your life gets a little better every year growing up, <laughs> a little yeah. more, you're a little more you're yourself. You're a little more, you have a little more, I don't know, strength in the world, a little, little more, I don't know. Um, so that, that just, um, that's how it felt. You make it sound so easy. This By patience, the end, this patience and discipline you have is just really. Do you think that's the athlete in you? Do you think that's from your I have, sports days? I have like, I'm kind of classic ADHD. Like I have trouble concentrating on things, but things I'm super interested in, I can I can just do a really deep, deep dive focus. So I've always had that ability for what I'm into. I'm really into, and I can. I can just pour everything into that. So I think you probably need that a little bit. I mean, so many filmmakers, I think that's the, that's the thing they never talk about in film school. It's like, um, Oh, are you ADHD? Are you OCD? Are you Asperger's? Good. <laughs> you kind of need to be a little bit. For Yeah. For I think that. Yeah. And yeah. so many, it, it's kind of unsaid, but I, I think all my friends are now like, oh yeah, you're, you're OCD. Of course. I'm, and I'm, I, I thought I was different. And then I was like, no, no, I'm total ADHD. Of course. You know? Yeah. I've always wondered that my memory for film, art, culture, and things I'm passionate on are just total single-minded drive. But when it comes to where my keys are, doing yeah. my tax return, and any, any real life ad, I'm a, I'm a fucking mess. God bless my girlfriend for yeah. picking up the slack. No, I can't. We all are. I have tremendous gaps in, you know, the real world. And remember Cassavetes said it best, that film was the great parallel world for, for, for us, you know, like it's a parallel world where we can live in. And I've always taken that to heart. <laughs> I, I live in this kind of parallel film u universe where the rules are a little different. I hate it when the real world encroaches on it, but uh, yeah, it's fine. Everybody finds their, uh, finds their place. You for know, sure. So. Scott Rudin said he wanted you for school of rock. And you said yourself, I'm not quite sure what you see in me. That makes you think I'd be, <laughs> good for this high school family film did you ever clarify what movie or why he thought you, obviously you, you totally smashed it and it was a great movie but i was wondering what his yeah vision of you, you was know, that that's funny he had been offering me films or i i had been had an inquiries from him. i'd never talked to him but things had come my way over the years and i'd always turned them down and this was just one more um strangely He's such a, he's a unique producer that way. And so I passed again. And then I got a call saying, Oh, Rudin's not accepting your pass. And I was like, what, you know? And so he had just determined, I think he, I think he was thinking days and confused and he'd like my recent film tape just from a dream. You know, when I met him, I don't know. He didn't tell that much. You know, he just, he had it in his head. I would be perfect for this. And I didn't, it was just, at that point, I thought it was a little cheesy. I was like, I can't deliver a lot of this. And he said, well, what would you change? I, I heard in his voice, he was like, well, what would you do different? He was really asking me like, mm. oh, and I, oh, you want my opinion? Yeah, the ending sucked. I, you know, I like 
Jack Black and I like this character, but this is kind of dumb and that's kind of, you know, like would that doesn't make sense. And and he was like, huh, we talked for a couple hours and then I he hooked me up with and I was like, well, what I was hearing from him wasn't do this script. It was like, how do we make this better? Like a good producer. But I, I hadn't done that. I hadn't come aboard something that was going to maybe exist with or without me. I turned it down for years and years, but I was in kind of a positive, I don't know, for personal reasons. You know, my, my kid was the age of the kids in the movie. I felt I was dialed into that. I, I really knew Jack's character. I liked him as a comic uh, actor. You know, he has such an interest. And there were all these reasons that I started thinking like, you know, I, I could make a cool movie here and I could express myself. This is fun. And I, I don't know. It just suddenly felt like a challenge. And I, I was lucky to get the rain to get with Mike White, you know, who had written the script, Jack and I, we formed this kind of trio of let's just make a cool film that we're happy with, you know, that that we'd be proud of. You know, Mike was in his own thing with Scott, you know, like he was calling him up. Yeah, you, Scott, you have to just kind of work with and around a little bit, you know. So, but I realized first on, oh, this guy's really smart. I better be a step ahead of him. You get a step behind him, you probably get crushed. So my, my little studio experiences, my two other studio experiences kind of let me be ready for that. And just experienced enough, just confident enough. And it really opened up my horizons like, oh, you know, you need a director. It's a director's medium. Yeah. You know, I come in and bring my own methodologies like we're going to get a real band. We're going to get non-actors if necessary, who can play guitar and drums. We're going to make a, and you know, they were like, what? We were just going to get, get actors. And then you fake all that. I'm like, no, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to get kids who can play and I'll get performances out of them. They're like, okay. So no, we're going to get this. And like everyone around is going, okay. I'm like, oh, I'm coming in and I'm doing what a director does. I just didn't know I could do it in that system. But of course you can everyone needs someone with a, a vision, you know, who can tell the story. That's what, that's what a director does. You know, you, you make those choices, you're telling the story. It has to make sense to you. So I got rid of a lot of little plot points that I'm not good at, or it didn't make sense. It was overly plotted. Like, let's just get to the thing, you know, and everybody kind of came aboard, you know? So it was a great creative experience ultimately, and it was the best of all worlds to kind of be rocking and rolling with Jack Black and Mike and then have the support of a producer like Scott Rudin and the studio. So when you need that Andrew Lloyd Webber song, that's kind of a funny thing in my indie world, people would come out. Oh, we can't afford that. We can't. Yeah. He, you know, we would say it in the next day. It'd be like, okay, yeah, we, we got that. So that's the difference between Amazing. 30 million to have a $30 million budget is very different than having a $6 million budget when it comes to, oh, can we get that ACDC song or can we use that lyric or, you know, indie film is, oh, uh, you can't, you know, how do you do it without all these things? That was like, okay, we can use all that to, to really make it as good as we can. So it was, it was fun, man. It was, it was really fun. I, I watched Apollo yesterday, which was so beautiful. Such a warm film, man. I was so great to watch. Oh, Did you use you. rotoscope again? Was Is this the same technique you used in Waking Life? 
No, I mean, it's, it's a very different technique. The, the, that was kind of interpolated. Waking Life and Scanner Darkly, those are so long ago. It's, it's really a different technique altogether. It's not interpolated. In the rotoscope, we just use that for the kind of the line drawing for the characters. I would call it performance capture. But really, Apollo is a, it's much more of a traditionally animated film, 2D and some 3D with rotoscope. It, it's kind of a collision of styles, purposefully so, to kind of, you know, we're trying to get this uh, unique kind of analog look for a uh, film that's, you know, obviously all digital, but, you know, trying to get these textures and stuff. So the animation was was quite fun, but as you can tell, it, it's come a long way in the years. And I was rocking and rolling with uh, Tommy and, you know, the companies we were working with. And I don't know, it was, it was really, again, it was really, really fun, really expressive. Were you using real locations or was that all green screen? A hundred percent green screen. Whoa. You know, we got it live, but yeah, not, you know, we were recreating a world that doesn't exist, you know, largely World and these games and all the Apollo stuff. So yeah, no, it's all, it's all imagined and created. The ice lolly scene killed me. Is that a true story of the, which one, which scene, the ice lolly, the ice pop. Sorry. We call them ice lollies in the UK, the ice pop where they get frozen to their. Oh, oh I, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> we call them popsicles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that really happened. So funny. It was like putting your tongue on dry ice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I found out that scene went on longer. It just didn't, you know, you slowly pour water on it and melt right. it off. If you pull it off, you just get blood, right? So there was a way to escape the clutches of dry ice from your popsicle. So <laughs> that was just, the movie is really a chronicle of like childhood horrors, you know, <laughs> these little things <laughs> in a fun way. Yeah, I relate. So much of those times where when you look back, like this was completely insane. What what were my parents thinking? Driving exactly. like this or strapping things to the roof like that and stuff it was just some <laughs> crazy. Yeah. How did you choose to meld the fantasy Apollo element with family history? Well, in my mind, they were just sort of melded together, you know, this kind of youthful... I probably had that fantasy when I was in maybe first grade, you know, living in the Houston area. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember thinking, you know, how you're a kid. You don't know how the world works, really. You don't know your place in it or, you know, it was just kind of a fun. The fact that I remembered that fantasy all these years later, and I was also thinking about having grown up near NASA you know, every film you do, you have to feel kind of chosen or like you're the only one who could be making this movie. That's the way I felt about like School of Rock or someone It's like, oh, I'm the I'm the only one who can make this right. Or I'm the best person. I've turned down so many films where like I'm not the best person. You know, someone else would do better here. This isn't my wheelhouse. So I like to feel that way. Or you should feel that way. Every movie you're doing like, oh, I'm the one, you know, you got to be just delusional enough. But I was thinking about my own childhood. It was actually year two of boyhood where it crossed my mind when I'm, I had that year to think, Oh, second grade, second grade, you know, whatever to kind of infuse the, those each year with kind of as much detail as I could remember. 
that I hit on. Oh, I was living near NASA at that time. We were walking on the moon. That was actually a pretty interesting time to be a kid. I haven't really ever seen that in a movie, like just to be in the shadow of NASA. And then I thought of this fantasy I had. This is probably like 2004. So that's where the seed of Apollo was. So I thought about it over the years. I was like, oh, that's a fun movie. And th those two things were always blended. Life back then as a kid and this Apollo mission, they, those just were always, that was always the story to try to depict the mission itself via this fantasy and show, uh, just tell a story about a family or a, you know, a time and a place. So, um, yeah, that's where it was born. I didn't write the script for probably 10 years, you know, nine or 10 years. I just had notes and ideas and, and then started taking it more seriously. I guess around the time Boyhood was over, <laughs> strangely. Yeah, it was like, okay, I've got another kid movie in me. And this one's very different. It's the fantasy and it's where nothing happens in Boyhood. This is everything. They land on the moon, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of the greatest uh, feat people have ever done, you know, engineering wise anyway. So yeah, it couldn't, the stakes couldn't be different. And yet it's still kind of a kid story that, you know, in the neighborhood there. Um, oh, you filmed this at Robert Rodriguez studio. Was that Troublemaker? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a studio too. We have two studios right next to each other here in Austin. It's Austin film studios and Troublemaker are just, you know, practically neighbors. So we kind of flow in between. We shoot things there and Robert uses our stages and I, I don't know, we're, we're a, a pretty tight community, you know, he's got the biggest green screen though. So it made, it made total sense to film there. Oh, of course. He's probably got that from like Sin City days. Yeah. I, I, have you guys been pals since, did you guys come up, you guys come up around the same time? I, I'm older than him by a bit. And, but yeah, El Mariachi was like one year after Slacker. So it was kind of, we were close, but we didn't, we met somewhere around there. What other filmmakers are you friends with? In Austin? Yeah. Well, shortly thereafter, um, Mike Judge moved to town somewhere in there. So he was doing not only his Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, but he was... Um, also doing his first films and stuff. So Mike, I don't know, others, you know, a lot, a lot of people came through town. We have, you know, there were the uh, kind of the previous generation around too. It's, it's kind of amazing the, you know, Terry Malick lived here, lives here. So, but he's not using our studio so much, <laughs> but he's around, he'll visit a set and stuff. And you're friends with Carve as well. I love Carve. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He, we've never lived in the same town, but we've been buddies. You know, I tell people at film festivals, like, go see each other's films. I met Kaveh at Sundance in 91. He was there with a little stiff. I was there with Slacker. And, you know, you just kind of bond. You, you, you like what they're about. Did you see his recent film where he's a film programmer? The students are all recording their own video diaries of their recounts of the day. Wait, what's the name of this one? I think the last um, thing from him is just his show, show about the show. No, it's called The New School, I think it's called. He teaches in New York. Yeah, no, he, he teaches at The New School. And he kind of basically, as an exercise, had them film a semester. And there's all these 
intense discussions going around. Everyone feeds, everyone records each other's, no, everyone records their own video diaries. And then you get to edit another person's diary. Oh, wow. So, so if you come in there all hot, like Richard was pissing me off today, blah, blah, blah. That's going to stay in because someone else is going to edit it. You can't censor yourself afterwards. You got to live with whatever you're putting down on film. Yeah. Yeah. That, wow. That sounds pretty intense. Uh, that, that sounds like a pure cave exercise, doesn't it? I love the fact he's teaching and getting paid for teaching, but then also making a movie on top of that. It's such a great cave <laughs> move. With Kaveh, you're you're immediately in some meta meta situation where everything is kind of folding in on itself. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even pitch when I pitch show about the show, I still haven't got my elevator pitch right for the show. Everyone always yeah. says, you know, as a programmer, what should I be watching? And I always say show about the show. But then when I go off like, well, he's trying to make a show, so he's making a show about that. And the next episode is Yeah. Next episode is about the making of the last one, which was about the one before. It's just about, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never sell it well. I, it's kind of impossible. I, but I don't, it, It's hard to sell, but man, people who get obsessed with it get obsessed with it. Cave, he 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 gets the deepest reactions. You know, I have a lot of. I suggest him to when I see someone's pretty hardcore about film. I if they haven't already seen some of Cave's films, I I turn them on to it and the show about the show just because like okay. This is, is this is truly personal hardcore, you know. Yes, fellas. I was always, I was always suggesting to Kave, it's like you gotta like find one degree of separation. You know, you gotta like instead of making your character a filmmaker, make him like a professor, make him a lawyer. You know, Woody Allen would always just you know make him give him some job that's not you. Yeah, but it's you, but just in a different. And Kave, he just couldn't do it. He's always like, no, it's no a hundred percent. Uh, realistic to what what it is, you know. He just that's how yeah. his mind. Works. There's no filter. Even when we showed his recent film, and I said, you know what, take the takings and put it toward the next show about the show. And he said, great. Is there any budget for me to come over as well? Can you fly me out and put me up? And I was like, no, we're broke. But and I was like, <laughs> shit. Am I going to be the next show about the show? Playing like the cheap London programmer who yeah. can't afford to bring him out. Yeah. <laughs> You quickly, no, I, 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 you know, as friends with Kave, I've always done the dance. Like a lot of people, he, uh, I realized he would come in and he'd have a tape recorder. He'd turn it on. <laughs> so where'd you and start asking questions? I'm like, Ooh, okay. I'm going to be very circumspect. And, you know, when he was in waking life, you know, he's in that, a lot of people's favorite scene in waking life. He did a thing with me where he made me, um, so okay, yeah, I'll be I'll be in the movie, Rick. We'll do that scene with you. But the, but you have to be in a movie I'm making at the same time. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So he interviewed me. He was here for two days on Waking Life, and he pulled me aside. We did an interview, and he was making a film. Have you ever heard about this? No. It was called Portrait of Kave Zahedi as a Complete Failure, and it was his instruction to me was, okay. I'm interviewing, but I'm not me. I'm just a filmmaker who's trying to find Kave. Kave's missing. No one's heard from him. For all we know, he could be dead. He's gone. So I'm trying to piece together his life from just material I've gathered, you know, things mm -hmm. I I knew him. So the, the guy interviewing me wasn't Kave. It was this person who seemed to know Kave and have 
some inkling of things said and done, but he's trying to piece together Cave's. <laughs> and so it was very weird for Cave to be looking at me yeah. and <laughs> not pretend it's not Cave. So he said, where did you meet Cave? Oh, at the Sundance Film Festival. It's like, oh, did you, you know, and then he, he sort of asked other, <laughs> why do you think Cave's career, why do you think your career has gone better than Cave's? You know, or like, why, why do you think Cave hasn't gotten, I'd be like, well, you know, Cave just didn't have a, that little bit of bullshit you need to smooth things through and make deals, you know, just a little, it's maybe it's a personality thing. He's just too, you know, too raw. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little too hardcore. So it was weird looking at him, but analyzing him too about, yeah, Cave, he just, yeah, he's just like, you know, someone wants to help him and he's like, yeah, give me the money instead of like, oh, thanks for the good idea. Or, you know, just it's called smooth social relations. Mm. You know, as much as Kabe demands honesty, honesty is a blunt instrument, you know, give everyone a little wiggle room before you put them in a corner. You know, I was just so I was like somewhere between advice, therapy, critique. It was unnerving is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> of course. But then I asked Kaveh, to me, it's a great lost Kaveh film. I asked him a year or so later, what happened to that film? He says, oh, I had to quit. It was just too much to keep hearing about. I said, well, you did. It. Seems like it's the ultimate film, you know, where you interview your friends about. But uh, <laughs> I always bring that one up because I want, I want some pressure on him to finish that film. Yeah, it seems unlike him to back down from yeah. something like that. I don't know if he lost. I don't know what it was, but or maybe he lost. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I always bring it up to him, just to to embarrass him, I guess. Final question: Do you have a dream project or a passion project that yeah you want to get off the ground, or you is there one that sticks out? Yeah, I mean, I have several. I would put in that category. Yeah, for a, a long time, I've been uh, working on. The Brits don't really know the American transcendentalists, do they? Do you know who Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau are? No. Margaret Fuller. Yeah, this is, uh, I find this to be true. They're taught in American schools because they're kind of like the first American philosophers, 19th century, but they really, you know, kind of set the American tone philosophically, maybe artistically, politically, everything, you know. So we're talking like 1830s New England, 30s through through the Civil War and all that. They were just these very influential uh, thinkers, writers, all writers. Have you ever heard of Walden? Yeah. Yeah, that's Thoreau. Right. And he's kind of the quintessential American dropout or I don't know. He, he gets used by every generation that comes next. The hippies loved him because he was civil disobedience. He wouldn't pay taxes because of slavery. He was just really hardcore, lived in a cabin alone that he built and, you know, just all about, um, and Emerson wrote extensively on self-reliance. And there was a lot of really brilliant women around Margaret Fuller and the Peabody sisters. I don't know. It's a really rich time. So I've been trying to make a movie or something about them. You know, it's kind of like my kind of thing, a bunch of yeah. people talking, you know, <laughs> thinking, and they're, and they're pretty, pretty radical folks. So I don't know. I've been working on that for like 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> someday, 
someday. I'm working on it right now. I'm working on it today, actually. So it's it's been an ongoing thing. But um, I don't know. They're so American, you know. They were really defining what America was mm-hmm. without, you know, what was the American philosophy? What was American? Who's the great American poet? When we start, the country's only like, you know, 60 70 years old. So it's an, it's a new country defining itself. And they were kind of on the cutting edge of it, but they were, they were heavily influenced obviously by, you know, European thought and artists, but it's like they were their own branch. So I don't know. I I see them as historically really significant, but I don't know. Something I've been playing with for a long time. So that's one, that's one project. I have others. I have a stack of scripts. So, you know, hopefully I get to make someday. Sure. That's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is such a pleasure to talk to you, being such a fan of your movies. Yeah, good talking. I hope people will look up Apollo and watch it. It was a fun film to work on during the pandemic. For sure. I loved it. I think because we're PG-13 over here. I don't know what the ratings is over there, but... Oh, wow, right. Because we had smoking in it for realism. It, it makes it not a kids or a family film s- somehow. I was asking Netflix, like, why isn't this film on the, and they're like, oh yeah, you're PG-13. We can't put it out there. So anyway, you got to tell people to look it up. Okay, cool. I'll push that at the beginning of the pod. Yeah, it's not going to come to them. Okay. They have to go to it. <laughs> cool. And I'll tell Carvey to send you that f- documentary I recommended. I think you'll really get a kick out of it. So it's a it's a documentary, and is it come out? Is it available? No, he gave it to us along with the other one we showed called How to Overthrow the Government, which was his one before that. But he did, I think, every semester he kind of knocks a documentary out as the men exercise in the class. But he's always interesting. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good exercise. I I, I think his students are benefiting greatly just to be around an artist who's really pushing themselves and them and, you know, whatever films they go on to make, you know, probably not exactly like his or who knows, but you know, it's a good, it's a good lesson in personal filmmaking. And I I think that's where the indie world should forever resides, you know, should. And at the end of uh, film, he always makes them do an impression of Cave, which is like a really fun, sadistic exercise. (laughs) Okay, deal. <laughs> okay, I definitely have to see that. So, Thanks again, Richard. I've been such a fan. Such a pleasure. Okay, yeah. Hey, great talking to you. Thank you, buddy. Have a good day. Yeah. Okay, man. <laughs> Take care. Okay, bye-bye. That's me and Richard Linklater. What an amazing guy. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know when I get to speak to those OG directors that really formed my taste and vision of cinema, those ones really get me deep. And this was a dream. Also, Apollo 10 and a half. Go watch it. It's so, so good. It's streaming for free on Netflix. 
and go watch it. Give Richard some good viewing figures. Get him that Netflix money so we can make big, crazy stuff. As always, thanks to my podcast engineer, Ewan Hinselwood, and Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv, for the beautiful music. Thank you for you guys for listening, and I'll see you next time.